0: She's standing down here now. If you want to make your way to the Klamath River, and more specifically, Klamath Falls, Oregon, I would recommend getting yourself to the J.R. Davis Rail Yard in horrible Roseville, California. As we all know, this is one of the largest rail yards in America, so it can seem a little intimidating. But don't worry, they're just trains. Even babies play with trains, so they can't be that bad, right? Anyway, once you've made your way to the yard, you'll need to head on over to the departure yard. Walk through the big grass field that's strewn with broken glass and old refrigerators and car parks. Follow the fence until you find a hole, wait until it's dark, stay out of sight, be quiet, be cool, and with a little luck and some gumption, you can make your way inside the rail yard without being seen. Now you're going to want to look for manifest trains with plenty of empty lumber racks. If you find any of those, there's a good chance they'll be heading north to the promised land of slippery fish and cool water. I'm talking about the Klamath River, baby! So now that you've found a mixed freight train with lots of empty lumber racks, find something comfortable like an open box car or a greener with a porch. Wait until the coast is clear and then get up in there and stay out of sight. I hope you like waiting because freight trains don't run on schedules. If you're lucky, your train will pull out of the yard within the next eight hours. Just get comfortable and take a nap if you can. If you can't, just spend your time thinking about how nice it'll be when you finally get to the Klamath so you can jump in and wash your soon-to-be-filth-caked body in the icy water. Let's say that you get lucky and you don't have to wait two days for your train to pull. Let's say that you get even luckier and you correctly guess that your train was heading north. You'll know this is the case when the train leaves the yard and goes under the rainbow bridge. Now you're on your way, but don't get too excited. You're riding a junk train, so you've got really low priority, which means you'll be stopping to let pretty much every other train pass you by deal with it it's a free ride you baby plus you'll get to see some great views on the way you'll get to go through a bunch of cool tunnels and you'll see mount shasta and you'll go through a cool town called weed if your train happens to stop in the middle of nowhere feel free to get off and have a look around enjoy nature poop on the tracks you should follow the sacramento river for quite a good part of the trip but forget about that we're here for the klamath And if everything goes as planned, you should be there about 24 hours after leaving Roseville. You'll know you're there after going through a bunch of flat farmland that smells like sweet, freshly mown grass. And then you'll go into a train yard and hopefully the train will stop and you'll hop off and sneak out of there. There are two train yards in Klamath Falls, but you probably got on a Union Pacific train in Roseville, so you'll get off in the Union Pacific yard in K Falls. I don't know though. You never know for sure where trains are going. Just be thankful you made it there without losing a limb. Finally, figure out how to get out of the train yard without being seen and then find a road with plenty of traffic and stick out your thumb. If somebody stops, ask them where you are just to be sure you got out in the right city and state. Then ask them if they'll take you to the river. If they say no, just do this over and over until somebody agrees to take you. Now you've made it. Now you're in the Klamath River, scaring away all the fish as you scrub your filthy body with a handful of grass.
1: all right all right all right all right welcome back to the secret society of fly tires episode seven in my head this episode marks a second chapter in the first season of this program do seasons have chapters it doesn't matter all i'm saying is the first six episodes each highlighted a fly pattern with the next set i'll be using each episode to wade deep (laughs) No. <laughs> into the history of specific fisheries what to tie if you plan to fish them and i'll interview someone that knows more than i do about the place first location on the list the klamath river a river i haven't had the chance to fish yet but one that's been high on my list for a few years i'm already off to a bad start i've made it painfully clear and even told you outright in my initial episodes that i am not a fly tying or fly fishing expert And I've never been to this place. You're about to listen to a podcast about the Klamath River from a glorified novice who has never even wet a line in its waters. Calm down, it's okay. I interviewed Jason Hartwick for this episode, and I Google stuff pretty good. And I will go to the Klamath. I'm hopeful that trip will happen soon. Researching this episode felt like preparing for my inevitable trip to the Klamath and I really enjoy getting ready for a fish mission. I love to tie flies with the purpose of using them at a specific place, at a specific time, and I want to absorb information that will make my trip more enjoyable. Before a fishing trip, I like to find out if I'll be near or passing by any historic sites. There's always something worth checking out. I've grown to like historical signage and memorial markers alright. Well, after a
0: long day and covering a lot of territory here in the state of Jefferson, look where we are staying tonight—the Klamath river river river, 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 River. It's an absolutely spectacular setting. What an absolutely spectacular
1: setting! Here. I make sure to do a food check. Also, good meals are even better after a long day on the water, and I really love Mexican food. So, if there's been a good burrito reported nearby, I'm getting one. Maybe I'll get bored of the fly tying topic altogether and season two of this podcast will be called the Secret Society of Ceviche Enjoyers. I can see the merch in my head now, actually. I'll put the Ceviche Enjoyers shirt up in my store right next to the branded raccoon hunting helmet lamp turned fly tying UV light I concepted with Alvin Dido in the last episode. I also like checking my fishing zones for any weird attractions. You know, places like the mystery spot in Santa Cruz or The Thing in El Paso. I might overprepare, prepare and I might use my preparation powers in the wrong areas sometimes, but that's how I do things. If I was fishing near Mount Shasta, why wouldn't I spend hours trying to find a Zendra that Mission Rama reported witnessing a being named Antarel cross through?
0: They have an encounter with a being up on the mountain. Uh, they have uh, a bunch of people who have this meditation experience going inside a door. They get a message about a door that's at Mount Shasta, and it actually looks like a door.
1: I don't know who this Antrail person is, and I've never heard of a Zendra, but let's go I guess? Maybe I overprepare because I tend to get myself into situations where I'm over my head. As soon as I got the steelhead bug, I booked a trip with my Uncle Mike to the Olympic Peninsula and went hunting for the largest wild steelhead I could find before I even knew what to do with one. I had barely gotten comfortable casting a fly rod, but I wanted to dive in head first. So here I go again, head first, this time into the Klamath River. To save myself from drowning so early, here's some history from AmericanRivers.org. The Klamath River flows from a broad patchwork of lakes and marshes at the foot of the Cascade Mountains on the California-Oregon border, and winds southwest into California. After passing through five hydropower dams, the river reaches the Pacific Ocean south of the fishing community of Crescent City. I'll stop right there to mark the first weirdness stop of the trip because you may want to visit the reportedly haunted McNulty House in Crescent City lillian mcnulty outlived her husband and when she passed away in 1957 she left instructions that the house should be converted into a library or museum her wishes were respected for a few decades but eventually after visitation started to drop it was transitioned back to a private home and sold to a family that family moved in and immediately began reporting strange happenings like faucets turning on by themselves If you were raised in drought-plagued Northern California, like me, the idea of our precious water being wasted by a ghost should be fucking terrifying. In fact, I already called the police on the ghost of Old Lady McNulty, and I hope they lock her up for life. Okay, maybe that's not the most exciting detour on this podcast fantasy trip to the Klamath. Let's continue. The river has been home to indigenous people for thousands of years and tribes including the Yurok, Karak, Hoopa, Shasta. And Klamath rely on and care for the river today. I already shoehorned some Shasta weirdness into the episode a couple minutes ago, and I was turned on to that story from paranormal researcher Grant Cameron. He's got a book all about it. It's a strange one, and unless you can vibrate pure positivity and love through telepathy and group meditation, you might want to just read about it instead of camping on the side of a mountain waiting for something to happen. Go to the Shasta Inn instead a pleasant surprise of a fishing lodge with food and full bar that has lots of good water in reach. For nearly a hundred years, dams on the Klamath have blocked salmon and steelhead from reaching hundreds of miles of habitat and have harmed water quality for people and wildlife. Four dams, J.C. Boyle, COPCO No. 1, COPCO No. 2, and Iron Gate, built between 1908 and 1962, will soon be coming down. This river restoration project will have lasting benefits for the river, salmon, and communities throughout the Klamath Basin. An article on flyfisherman.com said, The mighty Klamath is possibly the best river in the lower 48 for fly fishing for steelhead and salmon. It supports good runs of Chinook salmon with 100,000 to 200,000 fish returning most years. Roughly half the Chinooks are bound for the tributary Trinity River and come in early to mid-September. The other half enter the river in mid-August and head for the middle Klamath upstream of the confluence with the Trinity and downstream from Iron Gate Dam. Did you know that this whole zone happens to be a Sasquatch Highway just as much as it is an anatomous fish highway? Brave anglers might want to wander through the Marble Mountain wilderness near Etna, California to sleep alone in Bigfoot Cave. No, don't do that. It's probably named that for a reason. Dottie's looks like my kind of drive-in, though, so I'll stop in for a burger and tell everyone back home I was squatching. Preceding these Chinook salmon runs are half-pounder steelhead. Half-pounders are a special niche of steelheading and a biological anomaly that exists only in Northern California and Southern Oregon. The EcoAngler.com broke it down well. A somewhat unique steelhead life history plays out in two Pacific Coast rivers, the Klamath and Rogue River. Commonly called half-pounders, these immature steelhead return to freshwater after roughly four months in saltwater. The smaller steelhead that migrate back after one season go on to spend the winter in freshwater in search of food. Their migration contrasts with most other steelhead who spend one or two years in the ocean before returning. So why do some immature steelhead go on a migration of four months in salt while others don't? It turns out a steelhead's size at the end of its freshwater rearing plays a big factor in whether to undergo the half-pounder migration. Based on research, smaller than average steelhead smolts were more likely to undergo the half-pounder migration compared to those that were not. The half-pounder life history may be a strategy to increase the chance of survival by overwintering in freshwater habitats instead of the ocean, i.e. not as many hungry predators to avoid. Cool. The Klamath River is open year-round to fishing most years, but the timing of the steelhead runs means that certain times a year will be more productive than others.
0: So they all come out here and fish?
1: See, now you know everything about the Klamath River. You're a certified expert, just like me. I'll talk to my guest Jason Hartwick about the seasons and how they affect what you should tie when heading out to fish. I'll make sure to ask him about some of his signature fly patterns too, as he has many years of experience on the Klamath and the Trinity. Those rivers and conditions found in the area have influenced his tying and those signature patterns we'll also chat about some other Klamath related things, including a documentary he's been helping with about the pending removal of the four dams mentioned earlier. Jason is the owner and head guide for Steelhead on the Spay Guide Service. Born in Sacramento, just like this podcast, he caught his first Steelhead on my home river, the Lower American. He's a licensed USCG captain, a contracted fly tire for Aquaflies, and on the CF Berkheimer Pro Staff. For the last seven plus years, Jason's partnered up with other anglers like Rich Zellman scott howell and whitney gould to offer up the jefferson space sessions a space school designed for anglers of all levels on the klamath i've been wanting to pick his brain ever since our mutual friend jd richie told me i needed to fish with him when i got into two-handed rods unfortunately that hasn't lined up yet but we were able to find time to meet virtually for an hour here's our chat jason thanks for joining me you know i've been wanting to talk to you for a long time Uh, your reputation you're kind of known as a, a bit of a Jedi when it comes to the, the Klamath and the Trinity, too, and you know, I'm sure others. Um, but when the, the Klamath came up as a topic for the show, your name was top of the list. Thanks for, thanks for joining me.
2: Um, oh, glad to be here.
1: Before we get into talk specifically about the Klamath, I just wanted to find out a couple things. Like, How did you get into fly tying and how did it lead to you uh, becoming part of the Aquaflies team?
2: So I started fly tying. Oh gosh, I if I had to guess, probably somewhere around 18 years old. Um, I've been fly fishing since I was 12 or 13, um, just buying flies at at, a, at shops and uh, you know was around enough people that tied flies and just thought it was really cool that people tied their own flies and caught fish on them, and it didn't seem like it was that hard. So. Um, Andy Geeboard at Keeney's Fly Shop, who I actually have worked with. Um, right on.
1: Yeah. I know. Did Andy. A little
2: like intro fly tying class that I just I took at 18 years old and, you know, learned how to tie a willy bugger, a pheasant tail, you know, you're just El Care Caddis, standard trout flies. And um, yeah, kind of started from there and like, Got way into it when it came to, like, tying steelhead flies. Yeah. I did the trout thing for a little while, but when I really got heavily into steelhead fishing, it was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Like, they're much more interesting flies, way more fun to tie, and they're not super tiny and hard to tie. Yeah, (laughs)
1: totally. (laughs) um,
2: You know, I cut my teeth, you know, just tying, you know, streamers and care Caddis fishing on the American River as a kid for half pounders and little summer steelhead, um, and that kind of transitioned into tying flies for the Klamath and the Trinity. You know, summer steelhead flies when i come up and spend time up up north here.
1: Nice man. Yeah, I know Andy. I took I took uh, my first two handed casting lesson from Andy. He's a great dude, and I hope to have him on the show one of these days. Really interview him too. That's cool. Uh, you know, I fish the American often. And I was out there looking for shad just the other day. I think I read you caught your first steelhead on the American, yeah?
2: Yeah, I my first steelhead I caught on the American fishing for shad, gosh, probably like in like late May or early June down near Paradise Beach. Pretty just cool. swung, like little shad darts um, and landed like a six pound, like, oh, man. I guess, summer steelhead. Um, and I was like, wow, this is an eye opener. Um these things fight way harder than Chad and, yeah. and anything else I'd really yeah. caught on a fly rod. And that was kind of like the end of it.
1: Too cool, man. Too cool. Um, so, you're a tire, you're a field tester too, right? For Aquaflies?
2: Yeah. So, um, I've been tying for Aquaflies kind of since their inception. Um, Doug Brutico, who's one of the main guys and owners of the company, is a good friend of mine from Santa Rosa and probably one of the fishiest salmon and steelhead fishermen in the state. Um and at the time I was tying for Idle Wild Flies back many years ago um out of Portland, Oregon. And Idle Wild had a really cool thing going and it kind of like fell apart a little bit and um really wasn't like tying for anybody. And Doug was starting Aquaflies and wanted to do some of my patterns. So um kind of went the direction of Aquaflies and have been very, very pleased. They're some of the best tied steelhead flies on the market. Um, A lot of love and care goes into the people that tie the flies and um, the people developing them. So I've been very pleased and it's nice to just like be able to tie and help out a friend of mine too, who's got a pretty good business going.
1: Yeah, man, that's cool. So with the field testing part, what does that really boil down to? Like what is like when you have, when you're tasked to field test a fly or a group of flies or something like that, like what do you, what do you do?
2: Well, I guess as anybody who's like a commercial fly tire, um, pretty much is like field testing their own flies. Um, basically, you know, when we, we come up with patterns, you know, I, I take them to the river, fish them, you know, sometimes having my clients fish prototype style flies and, you know, seeing how, how they work, how they ride in the current, um, depth, uh, the profile, just kind of everything about how they fish and, you know, tweaking patterns every night when you get off the river to, you know, like, oh, I want less hackle on that. Or, you know, maybe I'm going to try a little different style hook and maybe that the fly will ride better. Maybe I'm going to bend the hook a little bit to, to get it to, um, you know, the point to sit down a little bit more, but just kind of tweaking flies as you're experimenting with them. Um, and so like, I'd say most everybody who's tying commercially is, is doing that. And, before they submit their flies to you know the companies that are tying them yeah that's kind of like what we do and then you know being testing flies for aqua flies you know like doug will get new patterns from other fly tires throughout the pacific northwest or even around the world and you know like he'll send me a couple and say hey like you're on the water every day try these let me know what you think um and it kind of evolves from there you know doug's pretty picky about the flies he brings into the catalog. And most of the the tires for Aquaflies are very accomplished fly tires. Um, and so there's not a lot of tweaking involved, I would say. Um, but just more like how they swim and the profile um and and putting a making sure a good product is being put out there for the consumers.
1: Yeah. Small little, small little adjustments that you yeah. can yeah, I hear you. Yeah. that sounds like sounds fun. You're you're out there testing. You know, your signature patterns, some some other folks' patterns too, I'm sure. Can can you give us like a rundown of the signature patterns that you have up, up on Aquaflies? Or is that I'll, the only is that the only place that you're selling them?
2: Yeah. So all my flies are, are through done through Aquaflies. Um gosh, I'll do my best to list all
1: the <laughs> you you don't have to list them all. Just give me a few I
2: um, yeah. Like the, the tube fly patterns I have mostly designed for like Chinook salmon, winter steelhead. Um there's like the Hartwick's hoser the flash tail tube fly um, like what we call a simple marabou tube, which is basically just a variation of a standard marabou tube fly. That's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, that has a little bit more profile. Um, I think we've got one called a Cyclops leech. And then for like summer fall steel patterns, um, the red rumbug bug is a new one this year. Um, the silent assassin, the October Hilton, um uh, gosh the sword fighter um i'm probably skinny spratly. uh there's one called a duck turd um <laughs> quite a few you know klamath trinity style patterns um i'm sure there's a few more that i'm, I'm leaving off the list but um those were kind of the main ones and, and they're, they're patterns I've been fishing on the Klamath and the Trinity Rivers for a long time. Like I really haven't come up with a ton of new patterns recently just because I've been so busy with yeah. other things going on. But um, very traditional, you know, hair wing, soft tackle style flies that you know, kind of have like buggy appeal and not a lot of like bling or flash to them, like very natural colors, mm. which is kind of what our summer steel would really like in california
1: nice yeah i'll I'll make sure to link to to the stuff in the show notes so people can check them out and, and maybe provide some some videos uh, ties if i can find some too just to step back for a second with the field testing like how do you know when a pattern is legit as opposed to just like getting lucky and, and catching some fish like when do you know it's like in the right spot for sure
2: um well that that's a good question because like a lot of times, I think steelhead will literally take just about anything. When it comes to like swinging flies for steelhead, like we're finding the most aggressive fish in the river that, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I've messed around with it by just tying like yarn on a hook and like they'll eat that. Yeah. yeah. But, like when it comes to like testing flies and having like high confidence in them, I'd say like, you know, you catch a fish on a fly one time, you're like, oh, cool, that like worked, you know, and then it's like two or three four more times after that, like fairly consistently, you're like, okay, there's something to this pattern that like is getting their attention. Like, is it the way it rides in the water column? Is it the profile? Is it the color combination? But I'd say after you've consistently found like a handful of fish on a pattern, that's when I'm kind of like, okay, this, this thing is like going in the, in the working box consistently.
1: Nice. Nice. So, so which of those signature flies would you say are, are your, you're most geared towards the Klamath?
2: I'd say the couple of patterns that I, I are definitely like go-tos on an everyday basis from like late summer through early fall on the Klamath River would be the red rumbug, the, the silent assassin, and then probably like the duck turd. Um, which is a very drab kind of peacock-bodied fly. Mm. All, all three of those are actually peacock-bodied flies um, that are kind of my go-tos for the Klamath. They're not big. They're typically like a size 8, 6 to an 8, but I kind of tie a lot of my stuff like low-water style, so I'm not using the entire hook. But those, those are definitely my go-to like subsurface, right near the surface, like floating line, flies for half pounders and steelhead on the Klamath.
1: Nice. Yeah. I'll, I'll, um, I'll put some details about those ones specifically in the show notes too. Um, familiar with a few of them already just from looking up videos of yours. Um, so that's cool. Super cool. I want to, I want to ask you a little bit kind of specifically too. I mean, we might as well get into the Klamath and which is, you know, what the focus of this episode's about, you know, you're from Sacramento. It's not exactly a quick trip up to the Klamath. It's not far, but what was, what was it? specifically that made you that drew you up there and kind of like i don't know it feels like it's kind of your home water now
2: yeah um well you know i i kind of started spending more time on the trinity river um you know like late teenage like kind of junior senior year of high school i was spending a lot of time on the the trinity partially because some really good friends of mine were from weaverville and so we'd go up and swing flies you know october for summer fall steelhead and um I just remember spending some time down on like Willow Creek and Hoopa one year and thinking like, wow, this part of the river is really cool. It's big, it's broad, it's got great tailouts." And like, hmm, what's it like down on the lower Klamath down around Wichipec, even lower down um, because I was into the, you know, the, that's when I started spay fishing um, and bigger water just seemed really cool and um, ventured kind of down into the Wichipec area and, like I think my first evening with a buddy of mine, like we hooked, you know, half a dozen half pounders and a couple adult steelhead and just fishing floating lines and like, didn't see another person. And I was like, this, oh, yeah. is, this is really cool. And this was like late nineties, early 2000s probably late nineties. Um, and yeah, like I had heard stories about it from, you know, working for Bill Keeney and Joe Sheershack at Keeney's who just passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Noe Fierros and all those guys were really big into going to the Klamath river for not for just for the half pounders, but like, for like, you're kind of in the middle in like the wild, wild West part of California. There's like not many people around. There's amazing water, beautiful scenery, and quite a few fish.
1: Yeah. Every time I go into Kini's, um, and we're talking steelhead, that's like, that's what they're That's where they direct me, you know? And I, you know, so I've been fishing for fly fishing for about 10 years and, and, Doing the two-handed stuff for probably about three, and so my my interest has peaked. I haven't been to the Klamath yet, to be totally honest, and um, it's it's peaked recently. And now with you know the um, the dam removal stuff happening, it's getting even more interesting. And so yeah, I, I can't wait to get up there. Like, how long did it take till you uh, till you felt like you knew that river intimately?
2: Uh, I mean, it. it... It's hard to say. I mean, like, I definitely focused on certain stretches of the Klamath. Like I I haven't, I fished it top to bottom, but like, I definitely spent a lot more time from like mid river, happy camp area down to the mouth. Um, And, you know, it took a couple of years to feel really comfortable, like knowing where to go, what what kind of flies to fish, what times of year the fish are in certain parts of the river. But, you know, after a few years of spending a lot of time on, it, I felt like extremely confident in it um and i definitely spent a lot more time guiding the trinity because there was just more demand for it and a lot of people were coming out of the bay area yeah. central valley it's, it's easily accessible um the runs of fish were really good for quite some period of time um and so the demand was just higher for the trinity which is why i spent more time guiding on it but then as like the numbers started to kind of like go down a little bit in the trinity and more people started showing up is when I started venturing over to the Klamath, especially with like really good clients of mine Mm -hmm. um, and just like, hey, well, you got to come check this out. Like you're not going to catch a bunch of big fish, but you're going to catch quite a few half pounders and the adult steel we do catch are like some of the hardest fighting fish pound for pound, like you'll find, like you'll catch two and three pound fish that will literally rip you into your backing in a heartbeat where you don't see that in the Trinity just because of the size of the river and the fish have worked their way through a lot of like class four and five whitewater to get up to where they slow down. So you're catching fish on the Klamath that aren't working very hard in the lower 40, 50 miles of river because it's so low gradient Mm -hmm. uh, and not a lot of pressure, um, in that stretch. Um, and so they're very aggressive, grabby fish. And the other thing that just really got my attention is how good of a floating line fishery it is like the entire fall. Like you can catch fish from, August all the way to December on floating lines, and there's not a lot of rivers, you know, throughout the country that you can kind of do that even when the water gets really cold and the clam is still that way.
1: Uh, you know, you were, you were talking about seasons. You know, we started started kind of you know, dipping into that. Like, would you mind, you know, without giving up, you know, all your secrets, like kind of uh, running down like what works, you know, season to season there. You know, like and and you know, you were talking about different, you know, different parts of the river. know maybe maybe you can you know say you know the lower section is you know where you know where you want to kind of look at for the for certain seasons you know or kind of go into it a little bit
2: yeah so i mean the klamath's basically from the mouth up to iron gate dam is over 100 miles um and most people kind of break the klamath into like three sections of river like the upper river the middle river the lower river uh, most of the guiding I do on the Klamath is the in the mid to lower river and I'll kind of break it up from like low up to the higher part. But basically the lower Klamath we kind of talk about from like the mouth of the river in Requa up to about the Wichipec area where the Trinity river dumps in. And that's about 42 miles a river. Um, and honestly you can catch steelhead in that stretch of river every month of the year. There's fresh steelhead in the lower Klamath every month of the year. There's certain times of the year that there's way more steelhead around. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say most of the time I spend on the lower Klamath typically like mid August to about mid October on the lower river. Uh, it's primarily a jet boat fishery, uh, swinging, you know, spay rods floating lines 90% of the time. Um, and you'll catch half pounders and adults, you know, summer fall run steelhead, uh, from, you know, mid-August to mid-October. And then typically um, the middle stretch of river, basically from like Witchpeck up to like Happy Camp area is what I'd classify as like the middle river. And fish will be in that stretch from like late September all the way, you know, into Christmas time. Um, I focus up there a little bit more like October, but there are fish through that whole time period um and it's the same style of fishery it's floating line fishing later in the year you can get into some more sink tip fishing because the water temps drop a little bit um and then the upper river from like happy camp up to iron gate dam seems to fish a lot better from like late october all the way through you know like december january um, I don't spend much time up there just cause it gets too far away from home. Mm-hmm. And by the time a good number of fish get up that way, it becomes a sink tip, more of a sink tip fishery. Um, and so I, I just, I don't fish it a lot anymore. I used to, I love it. It's a great stretch of river. Um, but it's a little bit smaller, um, and does, is starting to see a little bit more pressure than the mid to lower reaches.
1: Thanks for that you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about this documentary project you're working on since we're talking, you know, about the river now, how long you been working on this and can you, can you give us a little bit of info on the, on the project?
2: Yeah. So a good friend of mine, Shane Anderson, uh, North Fork studios, uh, he's been making documentaries mostly on like rivers, fish, forestry for gosh, six, seven years now. Um, and we did a project on the eel river together called a river's last chance okay, about yeah. four years ago mm-hmm. um and as that was kind of winding down you there was a lot more talk about what was going on in the klamath the potential of the dams coming down um and a, about two years ago now there was a bid through uh, krrc which is the klamath river renewal corporation which is basically taking over the license transfer for the dam removal from pacific core um and they basically had a bid to do a documentary for all the signatories, signatories of the of the KRRC, which includes uh american rivers cal trout trout unlimited uh the crook tribe the yurok tribe um, there's probably a few more i'm leaving out but um basically there's a bid for that project and we put a bid in for the documentary project which is sort of slated over five to six years so it's not like a documentary project that you're just going and shooting a year's worth of footage and mm. coming up with a film. This is like talking about like what's been going on, you know, with the Karuk, the Yurok tribes, the upper basin tribes, um, the work that they're doing with Pacific core, um, you know, the work that Trout Unlimited and Trout have done. And basically what everybody's done to, to make this dam removal process happen. Um, and so we're right now in the process of interviewing, um, a, a everybody involved, like we just finished up interviewing, uh, Frankie Joe Myers, who's the vice chair for the Yurok tribe, uh, Leif Hillman, who used to be the chairman of the Kruk tribe, who really helped spur the dam removal process and get it going, um, a number of years ago. Uh, Craig Tucker, who is kind of a spokesperson for all the tribes in the area, um, and just really kind of starting to to get going on the project, starting now for the next five years or however long it takes to really get the dams out, and we don't anticipate being done with the documentary until we get footage of that first salmon going up past J.C. Boyle Dam.
1: Oh man, that's gonna be a that's gonna be a big day, right?
2: So, um, yeah, it's, you know, even though the dam removals aren't happening just yet, like all, a lot of things are taking place. Um, they're working on, on what, how they're going to do the habitat restoration above the dams, um, you know, how they're going to implement spring Chinook into the system. Um, and yeah, like we're kind of just waiting for the final FERC, um, approval on the dam removal process, which we, hopefully should know exactly the dates by no later than December from what I'm being told.
1: That's what I was going to ask next. Like, so it's JC Boyle, COPCO number one and two and iron gate that are all coming down. Right. I was, I was doing some reading about this.
2: Correct. Yeah. So it's the lower four dams um, on the Klamath and yeah, it was slated to be, you know, removed starting, in 2022. And then it was pushed back to 2023. um, And there was still hope that things were going to get started this year. But because the I think believe the EIS survey kind of got pushed back a little bit that we're kind of on hold to potentially get pushed into 2024. um, That if if things kind of go at the pace they're going right now, I would anticipate 2024 being the year that uh, JC Boyle, Copco, and Iron Gate are going to re- be removed. The Copco diversion uh, potentially could be re- like start removal next summer if everything is on track.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like such a. I mean, I mean, obviously, it's not it's not a small project, you know. And there's tons of information. I think the whole plans online in PDF. If anybody wanted to read it, I mean, I think it's like a hefty read too because i was going through it but yeah i was going to ask if it's on track right and it sounds i mean these things like this are are probably really tough to keep on track but it sounds like it's at least moving in like a positive direction
2: yeah it's it's definitely i i I really believe it's going to happen i think it's probably going to be more like 2024 which means they'll start some of the processes next summer like the copco diversion could come out next july or august a year from now Um, and then they would start working on draining the reservoirs and deconstruction of some of the other dams for a blast in January of 2024 is kind of what the talk is right now. And from what I know, it would be doing a blast of Copco and JC Boyle at the exact same time on the same day. And then opening up the bottom gate at iron gate to flush out all the water and sediment, um, as that happens. And then they would start, you know, chipping away at iron gate after, you know, we're back to kind of a flowing river above there.
1: Yeah, man. I have so many like logistical questions. Your role in this is videography, right? You're, you're a videographer, um, on the project.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, the, the group I work for is, uh, actually, I, I guess it'd be Swiftwater films is our LLC for this project. Um, mm-hmm. And Shane Anderson's kind of like the head of it. And then we basically subcontract out a lot of work amongst different people that we work with. Um, And yeah, I shoot, I, I fly some drone stuff. I shoot time lapses for the project and then also, you know, like B, B roll, you know, footage um, on the project.
1: That's rad. Like I can, I can only imagine like the scale of having to, put together shots for the for the blast days on those with especially if two are coming down at once sounds like a fun a fun day
2: yeah it'll be really exciting when it happens like i i feel like it's gonna happen but until i actually like hear the blast or get to see it through the camera lens um, is when it'll really set it so there there'll be a period of time
1: when the rivers closed to fishing right
2: you know that I'm not 100% sure on. Um, they're probably they probably will do that above the dam sites, like above Iron Gate, but I wouldn't anticipate anything changing in the from Iron Gate down. Um, I haven't heard of anything like that, but you know, in this process, there's so much to figure out and to know about and what they're doing that it's kind of hard to stay on top of it. Yeah, I hear you. So
1: with the videography stuff, did, I mean, did fly fishing bring you into that or was it the other way around? Like, were you interested in photography and stuff first?
2: Well, I've always kind of been big into photography and just wanted, wanting to shoot photos of the rivers I'm on and while I'm guiding, fishing, all these beautiful places. And basically I kind of got into the videography thing. Like when I worked with Shane on a river's last chance, uh, on the eel, um, and, Kind of you know just slowly kind of got into it, and mostly I'm just doing work for his production company. Um, I shoot a few other things on my own time, but um I probably spend a lot more time doing time lapse photography and just standard still photography than anything else.
1: yeah, you know, I only see what you post on Instagram, and that stuff's great, you know i mean it looks it looks awesome i'll make sure I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes too. You have like a and I have a photographer for sure i had a couple more questions here about the documentary was there anything else you wanted to add about it you have a name for it or when it's you know you said it probably won't be coming out for you know four or five years or so right
2: yeah it'll probably be at least four or five years is my guess um i i, I don't know if we've settled on a final name it might be called Undamming klamath uh, i don't think that's completely set in stone yet hmm. um we have we, we started filming some stuff last year and this summer, we're really getting into like shooting a lot more. Like, we did a bunch of interviews two weeks ago, uh, mostly with tribal members of the Yurok and Kruk and Hoopa tribes. Um, and, you know, I think we, we've got a segment we're going to shoot with a res this summer who's in, in charge of all the habitat restoration above the dams. Um, and, we'll shoot the salmon festival, um, the Yurok tribe puts on in August, uh, probably shoot, you know, some stuff for the salmon migration this fall. So it's kind of really starting to, to happen now. Um, and we'll build into, you know, the dams hopefully getting blown up in 2024.
1: Right on. It's a hot topic right now. Um, you know, if you're, if you're looking online and reading about, Northern California fishing, you know, top of the list. Everybody's talking about it. Um, So everybody's excited. And, I, you know, speaking as someone who's never been there yet, I'm dying to get up there, and I'm planning to get up there before all that stuff happens, and I'm looking forward to seeing the before and after.
2: Yeah, it's it it should be amazing. I mean, just with all the success stories of other dam removals around the country, especially the Elwha, um, just knowing what potentially could happen with the river and how quickly, you know, I think summer steelhead will really – and fall steel it even in general will gain traction in the upper basin and it should only help um the salmon numbers in the future speaking of bringing rivers
1: back into shape
2: uh what do you what
1: do you think could be done to bring the lower american river back into shape
2: oh gosh that's a tough one (laughs) um i don't know if there's really a lot that can be done just given that it flows through uh, you know, Sacramento, um, and it's a day, the river's dammed. I mean, I can only imagine what the steelhead runs and salmon runs were like on the American pre dams. I mean, with all the habitat above Folsom Lake, Auburn, mm. those areas, um, probably honestly, like probably consistent water flows. It sounds like, you know, I think in the droughts right now, a lot of our rivers are suffering from being dewatered. Uh, too warm a water, toxic algae blooms. Um, it's not just something the American Americans experience, in, but we're experiencing it on the Klamath, mm-hmm. Eel, the Trinity, the the Rogue. I mean, there's, there aren't too many rivers, you know, up and down the West Coast right now that aren't dealing with climate change, uh, warmer water conditions, less water. And I think that's, you know, having a big impact on salmon and steel returns everywhere.
1: Yeah. you know, It's for someone who's only been fishing, you know, the American for about 10 years. Um, I'll, all I hear is the stories, right. Um, uh, of, of how good it was at, at one point. And, um, the, like really what kind of got me stoked on it was like, I was fishing down near, um, sailor sailor bar. Like right when I started fishing, a guy came tromping down, uh, tromping down the river with one on. And I took, I took the picture for him and he had, he got at least a 10 pound steely on like a little soft tackle and it just blew me up i'm like oh man those things are here you know and like so i've been i still i mean i live right by it i'm in carmichael and i fish it at least once a week you know get out there um whatever's going on if i can and um yeah i would love for it to somehow you know be rejuvenated and they do little band-aid projects like salmon restoration stuff that seem to help short term um but it's uh, you're right. I think there's not a whole lot that can be done with a river that's going through a metro area
2: like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I think right now though, like the one thing on the West coast with salmon and steelhead is the the places that have like climate refuge and have cold water that come into them and see snow melt and uh, just consistently like a little bit more cold water than most places. I think of the, the rivers that have really a chance to come back and i think what's so important about what's going on right now in the north coast here with the klamath dams coming out and then the potential of the eel river dams coming out here in the near future is basically getting cold water from the upper basins down into the main stretches of those rivers and you know you've got spring creeks that that run out of the upper klamath basin and that's cold water. But by the time it gets into all those lakes, you know, Klamath Lake, Keno Lake, JC Boyle, um, Copco, Iron Gate, that water warms up significantly and produces less oxygen. And it makes it harder for, for fish to thrive and creates algae blooms and and aquatic disease that are impacting our fish. Um, and it's that way in a lot of places. You just You've heard a lot more about it in the Klamath since the fish kill in 2002.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that, um, that I heard, one of the ways I heard about you first was uh, the Jefferson space sessions. I haven't, I haven't attended, I hope to someday. Um, are they happening in 2022?
2: Yeah. So, so we've done the Jefferson space sessions. I think this will be our seventh or eighth year now. Um, and basically they're, it's uh they're space casting schools. We host on the Klamath river, for anybody, it's not just a spay casting school. I mean, we're fishing every day, but the 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 focus is on becoming a better steelhead angler using two handed rods. Um, and so we focus on all the the casts, you know, the difference between fishing floating lines versus Skagit lines, you know, fly choice, water type, kind of breaking down all of like steelhead fishing for summer and fall run steelhead. Um, and they've been great just like the Klamath you know you get feedback a lot of the time like there's half pounders around there's plenty of adult summer steelhead and fall fish Um, and so it's a great place for people that have don't have a lot of experience or no experience to like learn how to cast and catch fish at the same time Um, and we're we're very fortunate we have a great location up at Sandy Bar Ranch um, that we've been hosting the sessions up there for a number of years and sell them out every year we're sold out for this year as well already cool Um, so yeah we always look forward to that it's uh it's a good time and meet lots of new excited anglers yeah
1: i mean it seems super cool like and like you said um not just casting and casting practice and instruction but some catching practice and stuff like that too which is which is important too um Is Who's up there with you this year? Is it Whitney Gould again?
2: No, so Whitney hasn't done it for a few years now. She's guiding in Montana on the Missouri River. So uh, for uh, now it's myself, uh, Rich Zellman. Rich and I kind of started the Jefferson Space Sessions together. Um, And then Scott Howell, um, who's out of the Medford, Oregon area. Um, Scott helps us with the sessions as well. And Scott is kind of born and raised fishing the Rogue and the Klamath Rivers. Um, and so it, it's been fun having Scott down because he hadn't spent a lot of time on the Klamath until the last couple of years. And it was funny last year, every day off in between the schools or the sessions, I should say, Scott is out there fishing and just having a blast. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, it's a good group of, of people. Um, you know, we anticipate just keep to keep doing it every year. It, it's one of those things like, We feel like one of these years they're not going to fill up, but they always do. And um, I think as the dam removal happens and more and more people like start hearing what's going on in the Klamath, we're going to start seeing like more people down this way fishing. Um, So it's, it's good for business. It's good for the river, good for the local economies.
1: Yeah. It seems like something that you almost don't have to advertise that much. Cause you don't, I don't see a whole lot about it. Like I didn't know that it was happening this year and that it was it was sold out. That's for sure.
2: Yeah. We didn't advertise. We, we haven't really advertised it much the last few years because we've actually had so many people contact us before right. we put it out there. Um, and then like we've had people rebook for the next year and we've had referrals. And so like, it's one of those things we haven't really advertised yeah. it like we, we probably should, but, um, you know, if like a week opens up or people drop out of spots, like we would probably advertise it a little bit more, but it's one of those things like we could do even more of them. I think right now we're doing four sessions this year Mm -hmm. and like, yeah, we could do more of them, but it's, it's like the perfect amount to like really be in that stretch of river, um, for like a month period.
1: Cool. Yeah. These are like three day,
2: three day classes. Yeah. They're three day schools. Um, people show up on a Thursday night. We fish like, you know, for example, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, and then they head home. So it's like three full days of fishing. Yeah. Um, we do a little fly tying in the evenings, you know, right tie some of our favorite like Klamath river patterns. Um, so it, it's kind of a, kind of a do everything in learning to steelhead fish, like fly tying, casting, line choice, flies, um, it's a great way for people that like wanna really get dialed into steel and fishing to kind of like break it down in a 3 or 4 day period
1: yeah there's a lot of variables it's awesome it it's a, it definitely sounds like a master class especially with the people you have there you know the group is the group sounds awesome i need to get up there i'm going to try to get up there 2023 20, man for what what kind of encouragement would you give someone uh, to give like two handed casting a shot, it it seems like a whole new skill set and, and knowledge base until you try. You know, you, even if you're already um, you know fly fishing with a single hand rod.
2: Yeah. So one, I would say it is not anything close to single hand fly casting. Um, I loud dog bark removed to save your ears. That are they pooch. Uh, extremely good single hand anglers. That you give them the two-handed rod and teach them how to cast it and they just struggle. Um, there's a lot, a lot with it. I mean, it's very easy to learn. Um, it takes some time to master, but like it's not the same as casting a single-handed fly rod. Um, it's a water loaded cast. I think one of the big myths about it is that like people want to do it because they think they can cast so much further. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think a good angler, I I know I can cast a single-handed fly rod as far as a spay rod like no question um what it allows you to do when targeting steelhead swinging flies is to like really cover the water well um in less amount of time you can fish in places you normally can't fish with a single-handed rod um and it also allows us to really target winter steelhead with heavy sink tips and Mm -hmm. big flies which is something that you is really hard to do with a single-handed nine foot you know seven eight weight fly rod um i think for people who haven't tried it it's if you like salmon and steel up fishing and even trout fishing nowadays um and swinging flies like it's definitely something to try it's not for everybody but like you have to try it at least once and kind of give it an, a chance because you're not going to master it on your first couple of times out. So like be patient and realize the more time you put into it, the better you're going to get. Um, but I also think for somebody that wants to like really become a good steel angler, like your best, l- like learning how to spay cast and, and kind of getting dialed to that because it's kind of the easiest way to target these fish swinging a fly
1: yeah it's kind of a little less effort too right i mean yeah. for fishing all day i mean and for me like i fish the american all the time right like i've already said and i don't do a lot of catching on the american so enjoying the casting is a big part of it for me too i just feel like the casting is so enjoyable you know uh, so going out so your your ideal day fishing you got the day off guiding day off from shooting shooting film what's your ideal like setup and place to fish like how do you what do you want to do
2: Oh, gosh, lots of stuff. One, I probably don't fish as much as most people think. Uh, mm-hmm. When I get days off <laughs> these days, a lot of times it's get, getting caught up in like tying flies or mm-hmm. running errands, preparing for the next set of trips. But when I do have some time to actually go fishing, um, I usually choose a like three to six hour window of when I want to go fishing depends on the time of the year. If it's like summer or fall period where like low light's really important, an ideal day for me would be just getting in the jet boat, running up the lower Klamath a little ways and fishing some of the the shade in the canyon um, and riffle hitching like a muddler minnow and skating it in a, you know, tail out or, you know, choppy run looking for summer run steelhead. One of my favorite things to do in the winter time, I, I love winter steelhead fishing, um, but a lot of times if I do get a chance to fish for winter steelhead, which doesn't happen a lot, um, I usually go out and fish like one or two runs. Um, and you know, if I find a fish great, if I don't, like head back to the house and, and take it easy, but I, I generally won't fish all day um, mm-hmm. just because I'm on the water every day things are fishable working so i don't feel like i'm necessarily missing out yeah. but i still want to get out there and and you know chase fish when i do have a chance
1: something about winter steelhead fishing makes you feel like you're more badass than everybody else you know you're like out there you're out there in the, in the elements you know like when nobody else wants to be out there um, it's it's super fun and but i haven't caught i haven't caught a steelhead um skating fly yet i really need i really want to i need to come up and fish with you dude I tried to once, and it was my fault. It didn't happen. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make that make it happen one of these days. You know, uh, one w- one last question that I like ending my interviews with, and it's totally not related to fly tying at all. It's um, I just want to find out if you had any if you've had any paranormal
2: experiences.
1: Uh, you spend way too much time in in Bigfoot country not to know one personally at this point.
2: Uh yeah, that's it's, it's funny. You know, a lot of my good clients. Ask me all the time about Bigfoot. (laughs) At least ones that are interested in Bigfoot, because yeah, I am up here in Bigfoot country. I spend ninety percent of my time on the Klamath River, Um, and you know, getting to know some of the the Yurok Native Americans. um, They have stories, you know, uh, in over the years of of Bigfoot and what they've heard or seen. Um, I personally have not seen Bigfoot. Um, I've had two experiences, one on the Klamath and one in the Trinity um, that, you know, to me didn't make sense. It wasn't a bear running through a campground or breaking trees behind us in the campground. Um, I can only think of it as possibly like Bigfoot, but we are in like the most remote stretch of California. I mean, there's so few people that live in the Klamath Basin and along that river that like I could easily see something being in that zone and hiding from anybody. Like there's people that have lived up in those areas for years because they don't see people. They don't run into other people. They don't want to be found. Um, it's an extremely remote part of the state, which is hard to imagine being in California and like not seeing a lot of people and, and, a lot of traffic and activities kind of in the, on the Klamath.
1: Yeah. Bigfoot's a fun, funny subject. I've, I I read about this stuff a lot. And, um, I figured you had at least some kind of story, you know, it sounds like you had some sounds or something like, you right. This yeah, I mean, yeah.
2: twice now, like once on the Trinity and once or even maybe twice on the Klamath, definitely heard some like screeching noises, um, Heard some like tree knocks and tree breaking. Um, All three of these would be in different parts of the river, but but also in parts where like there aren't roads and people really around too much. Um, You know, I'm not going to say that it necessarily is, but you you try to gather what it could be. And like, I spent a lot of time around bears, be it on the Klamath, you see black bear every day in Alaska. I've worked up there for, 14 of the last 15 years and dealt with, you know, grizz, you know, brown bears and cubs. And th- there's a big difference between a cub sc- making a screeching sound to its mom versus some of the sounds we've heard out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. It's a totally different pitch and tone to it.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm open to a, a lot of stuff, a lot of weird stuff. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, I read a lot of, I read a lot of, uh, online about all different subjects and, with with bigfoot i've gone i've gone back and forth it a lot over the years i mean it's cool that it's like a northern california thing kind of i know it's i know it's almost i guess you could say it's global but the the big video is a northern california thing right um the uh, patterson film and um i've kind of gone back and forth a bunch of times on whether i think it's legit or not or, or whether it's uh you know some kind of missing link or, or you know ape species or something like that or uh, and I think, like, when I, when I, if, if I had to make my own decision or opinion on it, I would, I, I'm leaning more towards something like, uh, even weirder and maybe, maybe even spiritual or like, uh, interdimensional or something like that because, because of the global reach on it. Like, almost every ancient culture has these stories, right? Yeah. And it's not just in the Pacific Northwest, you know, or, but it's it's all over, it's all over the globe. And if it's like that and we're not, ever finding real evidence for it but there's this like um overreaching persistent mythology of it um it leads me to believe that there's a possibility for it you know not to take this you know interview in a totally weird (laughs) weird weird (laughs) area but that's the question i asked and you know i don't get a lot of answers to it to be honest Um, but yeah it's an interesting thing maybe uh, when i come up there we'll go hunting for it
2: dude yeah there you go um
1: thanks for thanks for coming on the program and i really appreciate you spending some time with me breaking off some knowledge for everybody and like i said i'll, I'll um i'll include links to a whole bunch of the stuff in the show notes um your other film that you mentioned I'll, I'll link to that some of your fly patterns some tie-in videos um and a whole bunch of other stuff I try to fill that up with information so people can um, dig around and, and uh, learn more um you know outside of just hearing me blab but uh, thanks again man all right thanks cool have a good one you too Well, thanks to Jason, I couldn't be more stoked to finally make my way to the Klamath. This will happen soon, and I'll prove it with pictures one of these days. Hopefully, I'll find myself bettering my two-handed casting and fishing skills alongside Jason when I get up there. I could pick his brain for hours about tying and fishing, and now apparently Bigfoot too. See, someone finally had some unexplainable experiences to share. Little bit of a dry spell there ever since my first interview when Jonathan Farmer had a ghost story. All the links for things we talked about on the episode can be found in the show notes, so don't forget to check those out. And thanks for tuning in to my seventh episode. Lucky number seven, matching up with some lucky steelhead and salmon that are getting some river back with the demolition of the dams on the Klamath in the coming years. I feel lucky myself to be around to witness the restoration and positive impact it will have on species that are so important in so many ways. I'll keep the river-centric episodes going with my next episode focusing on another gem of a river, the Truckee. I'll probably do a few more of these on specific bodies of water, and then move on to something else for a bit. I don't know man, if you really knew all the things that bounced around in my brain you'd be amazed that these podcasts get done at all. How can I get to the Klamath soon? When do I have to pick my kid up from school again? What do you mean the Wizard of Oz is an occult love letter to Helena Blavatsky? Should I have two corn dogs for lunch or three corn dogs for lunch? Why is my son perched on my shoulder like a parrot? Why is the government and the media trying to scare me all the time? Oh good, I only have six Zoom meetings at work today. Would it be weird if I started wearing wigs everywhere? How am I still so bad at guitar after 25 years of playing one? I miss my friend John Clemenson. How are my young children already smarter than me? Do I have enough money in my checking account to buy another tracksuit? Do I have any money in my checking account? Is there some sort of immensely important connection to all these ancient megaliths found around the globe? Is anyone still listening to me? And that's just a quick peek of what I'm comfortable sharing on the internet forever with strangers. If there are any fly tying topics that you'd like to hear me cover, or someone you'd like to hear me interview in the future, let me know. There are many ways to reach me through secretsocietyofflytires.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Goodbye. Just as a reminder, the next two organizations do not sponsor the podcast and have probably never heard it. But I back what they do, and I'd like to spread the word to people who may have not heard of them yet. So I'll keep reading these until they tell me to stop. Cast Hope is a nonprofit organization positively impacting kids and their mentors in California and Western Nevada through free fly fishing and outdoor experiences. Through their program, clients build mentoring relationships, fly fishing skills, outdoor knowledge, sustainable practices, and personal values. Cast Hope's Gift of the Outdoors empowers each mentoring pair to grow closer as they participate in healthy hobbies together. Check them out at casthope.org and whichever social network you like to use. Wild Steelheaders United was established to educate and mobilize the numerous wild steelhead advocates. It's a place where anglers can become more informed about wild steelhead biology and ecology, keep abreast of policy issues, and learn about Trout Unlimited's conservation work. As demonstrated by history, it is certainly possible to rally conservation-minded steelhead anglers to weigh in on a specific management decision that threatens to eliminate something they value. But there is no precedent for advancing a proactive, sustainable policy agenda at scale through purely volunteer efforts. Chances of conservation success are greatest if we have the backing of as many individuals as possible across all the Pacific states. This is why Wild Steelheaders United is critical. Visit wildsteelheaders.org for more info. This episode of The Secret
0: Society of Fly Tires is brought to you by The Secret Society of Ceviche Enjoyers, a podcast made by and for people who love gobbling down big old bags of ceviche. What ceviche, you ask? Well, listen to The Secret Society of Ceviche Enjoyers to find out. But if you don't have time for that, I'll tell you. It's raw fish that people put juice on and pretend it's cooked. They eat it like that. Subscribe and like and be notified today and forever.